0: Working with the Kirisu Hei community in the central coast of BC, we've been collecting coral and sponge data and rockfish data because both of us are interested in these different habitats and these deep sea ecosystems. So we've brought in deep sea cameras, large ships for the last three years. And in that time, we've been able to discover a whole brand new ecosystem we didn't even know none of us knew existed up there. And it's the first coral reef, deep sea coral reef on our coast and this is super exciting because what we as scientists didn't believe it could live in our ecosystem we thought that our water was too acidic it was too anoxic so that's not enough oxygen and here it is we found it and it took three years of real collaborative work and now we're working with the community to give them all the data and information we can to really then take it to the next step and protect it
1: Hi everyone, thanks for joining us today on Protecting Blue Nature. I'm your host, Anari Garg, joining you from Bamfield, B.C., on the traditional territory of the Huwait First Nations, one of the Ma Nuls Treaty nations. We started this series talking about the challenges and opportunities of building a marine-protected network at a global scale. But the work on the ground, or in the water, usually happens at local and regional scales. Often, this involves engaging with multiple stakeholders, scientific monitoring, and community outreach. Our guest today is Tammy Norgaard, the Program Head for the Integrated Conservation Monitoring Program for the Department of Fisheries and Oceans Canada. Our discussion today relates to the IMPACT-5 theme of managing MPAs and human activity. Blue Nature is a podcast from Impact 5, the fifth International Marine Protected Area Congress taking place in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada from the 3rd to the 9th of February, 2023. I'm working alongside Isabel Grock to explore the themes and streams of Impact 5 through this podcast. Impact 5 will be jointly hosted by the host First Nations, the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations, together with the province of British Columbia, the Government of Canada, the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, and the International Union for Conservation of Nature. We are grateful to the host First Nations for welcoming us into their traditional unceded territories for this Congress. Thanks for joining us today, Tammy. Can you start by
0: telling us about your journey and how
1: you got to where you are today?
0: So my name is Tammy Norgard, and I am now working for the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, and I'm the Program Head for the Integrated Conservation Monitoring Program. And how I got here, wow, it's kind of a long and complicated journey that takes you all over the place. But it starts at the University of Victoria. I knew I didn't really want to work on whales. I kind of was interested in the creatures under the sea, uh, under the rocks, on the beaches. And so then I did a degree and I got um, a job right out of university working with First Nations, doing helping them do their marine conservation, marine resource planning work. And from there, it just, um, it just sort of kept, kept rolling for about 15 years on all different projects from growing shellfish to setting up marine protected areas for them to figuring out how we can safely and um o- easily open the um collect resources for their communities. And then about 15 years ago I started working for the federal government. And through a few different jobs I'm now in this marine conservation planning program which is a fantastic place to be in the government right now.
1: Can you tell us about what your team at the Integrated Conservation
0: Monitoring Program actually does? Well, it's evolving. So in the last five years, um, it our program has been growing. So my team right now is developing monitoring protocols, working with all the other scientists, to develop ways to get out there and actually collect the data, uh, do the surveys. But actually, it's a real big pro- uh, project on just coordinating and organizing the data we do collect. Super fun and diverse program. Even We even have a, a section of the program that um, goes through all the animals we collect from the deep sea and has an identification and taxonomy. And we're discovering new species regularly from our, our species we collect each year. One of the things we really, really need to do is work with all our partners to find what these areas are and make sure that they're all in areas that are protectable, that work with all the different resource groups and all the different stakeholders and all the different communities, that these are areas they want to protect. The ocean's full of amazing places and there's lots to protect. Um, It's just there's lots of different interest groups involved. So I don't know where we'll get to.
1: Yeah, no kidding. How do you navigate the tensions of all the different interest groups in prioritizing and choosing
0: those areas. All kinds of stakeholders really do want to protect the resources. They are interested in uh, protecting the resources, but there, there's all different groups that are also interested in str- extracting them for food fisheries or for commercial fisheries or for whatever. And so we, do, we, we have managers that work with each of these groups to find where the common ground is. We as scientists have the kind of the most fun job. I get to work with all the different groups to ask them, where are these cool areas? And let's go, let's go collect data on them, see how big they are, or if we can find new ones that are similar to it. It's really important to find as many areas so you know where all of them are. So for example, sponge reefs, we wanted to know where all the sponge reefs are as much as possible so that we can make sure we're protecting a large portion of them. And so the, in the last 10 years on our coast, we've really put a lot of protection to sponge reefs the, on the Pacific coasts.
1: Yeah, sponge reefs are so cool. Um, what are some of the other
0: neat? ecosystems that we don't often hear of. So a lot of people on the Pacific coast here don't realize that we have this amazing deep sea ecosystem off our coast that's unique around the world. Our Canadian border goes out to the 200 mile limit and that limit is a lot of deep sea habitat. And in that deep sea habitat, we have hydrothermal vents. We have seamounts. We have these abyssal plains. We have these canyons. We have some knolls, hills, all of these really different ecosystems. And these happen because we have uh, tectonic activity close to our shoreline. And in 2017, when we first started, we went out there and we thought we had 17 seamounts. Now seamounts are mountains under the water that grow, go up to at least a thousand meters from the area around them. Since 2017, we are now at 65 seamounts we've discovered. So there is an entire mountain ranges out there that we didn't even know about. And in the last five years, we've confirmed they're there and have been able to really um, actually put cameras down and see the life that's on them. That's amazing. Can anyone go and just look at some of the footage from these cameras? Yes. Yeah, that's been a huge part of our work. Um, From day one, I really wanted to share with the Canadian public and as much of the amazing ecosystem that's out there. And so uh, my partner, Dr. Shrice Dupree, and I developed this real outreach and communication campaign where we live streamed all of our footage from all our surveys. And now all of you can find all these um, on SeaTube at Oceans 3.0 at Ocean Networks Canada. They've been hosting all of our dives on their sites. You can search up all the Department of Fisheries and Oceans dives and um, see their different places, all the different seamounts out there.
1: I love that. Instead of YouTube, you go on to SeaTube <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. How do you actually go out on the boat and identify some of these areas? Or what are some of the cool technologies
0: that you use to do that? We take massive ships, uh, we go quite far offshore. So we take our biggest Coast Guard ships on our coast. And then we take deep sea cameras. Department of Fisheries has a deep sea drop camera that we can take from the bottom of the ship and we can tow it two kilometers behind us and blow us. And so it goes quite deep. But there are underwater remotely operated vehicles that are quite fancy, that are able to take go down with arms and cameras and collect stuff and drop stuff and do all kinds of really cool experiments. So those are the only devices we have used really drops, drop cameras that we pull and just look at the footage all the way to ROVs with arms and collect- abilities. There are submersible submarines and stuff. We have not been able to use those on our coast yet. Um, well, in the last five years, they have in the past, but we haven't been able to experience that yet. And so we have a lot of partners that we work with that help us uh, all the way from, you know, providing us a ship or an opportunity to go on someone's ship who's on this coast. And so it, there's lots of really amazing work happening out there all the way down to um, just acoustics sampling. So they're just doing um, mapping the seabeds which is another whole project that really needs to occur. Um, Seabed 2030 is hoping to map the oceans by 2030. And I can tell you, most of our offshore is not mapped. This is how we did not know we had mountains out there. And so every time we go out, we try to map a little portion of it. But we actually don't have that technology in the federal government. We have to like rent it or borrow it or ask someone else's ship who's driving by to do it for us.
1: It's cool to hear, though, that there is that level of collaboration Since it's such a resource intensive area, you can sort of literally hop onto another ship or see if other people can help out. How how have you found that experience in your current role and in
0: marine management in general? It's been fantastic. It's been super collaborative and really positive. I really can't say enough about how much I've learned and the opportunities we've had to meet people around Canada and the world and to work with them on different expeditions just easily from right now there's a ship from Germany that's going to be on our coast in two days. We've been working for five months with them trying to make sure they get the right permits so that they can turn their sounders on and collect some of our mapping data that we really want. And You know, I won't be on that ship, but I'll see all that data. And we'll be working with that scientist to help collect and answer questions on a whole another ecosystem called cold seeps, which uh, we need to collect data on it as well. It's a real part of my job that I have actually been asking and trying to prioritize as much as possible because I really do like the collaborations from international um, down to the small uh, First Nation communities we work with.
1: So what has been your past experience navigating conflicting user groups, for example, or how do you bring people together on the ground?
0: Navigating um, user groups is part of of what I do. But luckily with science, it's really getting all the information together and and sharing what we have and what others have. And like I said, our research is very expensive and we often have a lot of um, tools that our First Nations partners or other community members don't have. So we're always willing to partner and more than that, we're even, we don't really go to First Nations communities without, without partnering. So it's more of a step even farther back. Like we talk about different interests in an area. We talk about different goals. We talk, we share our data right away. We see if there's an interest in wanting to work in the same areas together. And then we build research plans that answer questions that work for both of the different um, research quest, uh, programs. And so we've been working in the central coast with with the First Nations groups up there for the last, I'd say, four years, working towards trying to find where our deep sea coral and sponge habitats are. But they're really interested in finding where their larger rockfish are in their ecosystems. And we assume they're in the same places. So we've been working together to look at all the footage to find that information.
1: All of these data that you're collecting, how does it then use to inform policy for marine protected
0: area? planning? First of all, really pretty pictures underwater can say a thousand words when you're doing outreach, but that's about it. Then you have to to actually look at the video and turn it into data. And that is a process that, again, one of my parts of my program is working on. um, It's called annotation of the video. And so we'll turn that into data. And really it's where we find each species, how many, all those kind of questions. Those then go into the kind of research documents that are been asked by our managers about different questions, simple as where are the special ecosystems? What is important to protect? How many do we have of them? Um, those papers get written in a government sort of, they're called the science advisory process. And we probably write one or two of these a year. And then they these then get used by managers to make decisions on where they'd like to put marine protected areas. And then And then there's a long process working with the different stakeholders to move forward on reprotect processes.
1: And does that pipeline usually go pretty smoothly where you see the data you're collecting
0: informing a policy output? It has in the offshore. On our coast, in the offshore region, it has gone fairly smoothly and quickly since 2017. But, uh, for example, if we talk about uh, Skankinklis Bowie um, up by near Haida Gwaii, that process has been underway for almost, it took about 20 years from... Uh, to make it to finalize its Marine marine Protected Area Management Plan. Sometimes it's smooth and sometimes it has a lot of, um, well, a lot of changes. In the last five years, there's been a very clear direction from the federal government on how to move forward on MPAs. So as a government employee, I do know the steps involved from finding a cool, unique, unique area to moving forward with it. Then you develop a monitoring framework. Then you develop a management plan. Then a monitoring plan. There's like these documents that will all happen in time. But there's many steps between each one that happens with the managers and community members to actually move forward. So... There is a pretty clear pipeline, but it sometimes takes a lot longer than, um, well, I think it takes the right amount of speed because you do have to give everybody time to get to the right place. Maybe it's not the speed that some people would like to be, but it's the speed that actually things happen at without overloading everybody. What are some of those on the ground steps that need to happen? This is where it steps off and managers step in. We as scientists provide the information. Scientists from the community and scientists from um, the federal government come together. We provide information and then we really pass it off to our managers to take the next step forward, decide if it's an area that can be protected. And then they'll talk to the other stakeholder groups, all that bring everybody together in meetings and discuss these things. And then if it moves forward, the managers have to write many documents and policy documents around this marine protected area before it moves forward. And then it comes back to the scientists to develop monitoring plans and management plans and um, monitoring frameworks.
1: And does it matter if the marine protected areas along the coast have any sort of connectivity between them? Uh, Is it better to have like many smaller marine protected areas or have
0: huge areas? Well, that is the question of marine protected area planning. (laughs) I don't know the answer to it. Um, In the north coast of BC, we've been trying to develop a a network of marine protected areas. And this has been going forward and been worked on for years and years and years. And so there is a plan that is underway. Uh, So they have been developing a large marine protected area network. But then on the offshore, we have a massive marine protected area that's being put in place. So I'd say the Pacific coast, we're doing both versions of that <laughs> and um, and lots of little ones uh, as well down in the south coast where there's sponge reefs. So I don't know if we've really set on what's better or what we're just sort of covering is all the bases. <laughs> Sounds like it can't hurt and that the monitoring probably feeds into that, hey? Yes. And that's the big step that we haven't done a lot of. And that's a real new thing. I want it's a little bit of a new science for us in um, in the way that we haven't been able to long term monitor a lot of these areas or any of these areas, and so we're really starting that with a Skunkingless Bowie MPA, and we've have quite a few years of data, a uh, monitoring data, but not they're they're like they're close together years. We need like. 30 to 40 years of data, I think, to really know how to make sure we're monitoring correctly, we're collecting the right data, we're seeing the changes or hopefully seeing no changes and that things are, um, it's working. So that's the next big step in science is figuring uh, in this marine conservation science is make sure we're monitoring correctly.
1: Now, I wanted to take a quick step back. We're saying MPA, marine protected areas, but it seems like that's a very general term as well as specific term. Could you tell us more about the different types of marine
0: conservation or marine protected areas? The terminology marine protected area is used very generally as all areas you protect in the ocean. But within the federal government of Canada, we add the terminology Oceans Act Marine Protected Area. And this is a very um, specific term. And it's a term that happens where it's a government of Canada Marine protected area. On our Pacific coast, there are many kinds of marine protected area, all the way from provincial parks to national marine conservation area, which are Parks Canada marine protected areas. Um, there's there's conservation areas through different um, conservation groups or conservation organizations within the communities. So yes, there is lots and lots of different marine protected areas, and it actually is a very complicated list that we've over the years keep updating and changing and adding to. So but when i'm talking about within the federal government we are sort of always aiming to the highest legislated marine protected area and do all of these different types count towards that 30 by 30 goal they've all been reviewed and some do and some don't and i don't actually have the clear list on which ones but yes there are some of those that actually do um and some that Are uh, still in review. Where rockfish conservation areas are special ones that have been in and out of the review trying to figure out if they will be counted or not. Why? Like, what counts as more protected than another in a way? It's the um, activities that are allowed in each one of these MPAs. And everyone has to, all of them have different lists of uh, allowed activities, and those have to be reviewed and then across Canada and compared. And that's something that there is a committee that does that.
1: I want to transition a little bit to talk about. the role of scientists in engaging with local organizations and indigenous groups to understand the scope of priorities within certain areas, Could you tell us about a time or an example that you engaged in that kind of process?
0: Yeah, so working with the Kittasu Hayhas community in the central coast of BC, we've been collecting coral and sponge data and rockfish data because both of us are interested in these different habitats and these deep sea ecosystems. So we've brought in deep sea cameras, large ships for the last three years. And in that time, we've been able to discover a whole brand new ecosystem. We didn't even know, none of us knew existed up there. And it's the first coral reef, deep sea coral reef on our coast. And this is super exciting because what we as scientists didn't believe it could live in our ecosystem. We thought that our water was too acidic. It was too anoxic. So that's not enough oxygen. And here it is, we found it and it took three years of real collaborative work. And now we're working with the community to give them all the data and information we can to really then take it to the next step and protect it. It's a complicated one. It's in an area that through their original marine planning processes was going to be open to some sort of fishing. So now they need to go back to their own community stakeholders and to larger stakeholders and to the federal government to change what they were already planning within this area. Um, I think that's one of the more complicated pieces is that we keep discovering more things and that changes plans that were already in place for the last three or four years in many of these communities or even 10 years. And it's great to discover new science and new areas. It's really hard to change after you've already negotiated what was going to happen in an area. And so managers on top of the job of just like protecting new areas, they also have to like really go back and change what they've already been were planning to protect. And so super complicated process. Um, so as scientists, it's a little easier because we're really just trying to discover, find, make sure everyone knows where it all is and provide as much data as possible. And that's what the key is, just as much as we can so they can have as much data for the actual analysis of where to protect.
1: And how does one find a coral
0: reef on the west coast of Canada? Right. (laughs) Yeah, this is a this isn't what you picture in the reef, but but it's pretty cool. It's a hard coral. It's it's a hard stony coral and it is in the deeper. It's deep. It's 200 meters down. It's quite deep. It's in the dark zone. Um, And how do you discover it? Well, this is the weird part. Uh, We were just in an area and I'd been working in this area for 20 years. And I said, I really want to put the camera over here. In 2019, we put the camera over there and we saw remnants of this particular coral. We saw live little bits. We're like, what is going on here? Where is this from? We couldn't figure it out. And then that was 2019. Then 2020 came and our survey got canceled. And then so we had to wait till 2021 and we went back out there and looked for two weeks and couldn't find. We knew there had to be a larger source reef somewhere and we couldn't find it. And I was about to give up. And this is a story I tell everybody. Um, and because we had a small crew on board, we were on this COVID crew. There was only a few of us. And I was like, okay, we have one more day left. Where are we going to go? And I chose something completely where it was not in our range. i like, let's go way over here and look at this thing. And in that spot, we found the source reef. And so in 2021, we were able to discover this crazy new habitat that no one knew was there. And it's not even in a hidden spot. Um, it is underneath where the, the ferry goes up the inside passage, every boat that goes to Alaska, any boat that goes through the inside passage passes over top of this reef right over it. Yeah. And then we're able to go back in 2022 this year and get the extent and the large, the area of it and really begin to figure out what was there and how it, how, um, how big the habitat is and check a few other areas. And really what we learned this year, is super unique and it's smaller than we thought. And it was surprising we even found it because it was kind of a needle in a haystack. That's amazing. You have deep sea coral instincts. Oh, it's kind of fun. Sometimes you just get to say, you know, you look at the bot, look at a really good map. You think that would be a kind of neat spot for something. Let's go drop the camera on that. And sometimes it works out. (laughs) Are there any future areas you're excited to explore or you think that we should be monitoring? I have places I haven't seen yet. Personally, I have not been I mean, I've seen hydrothermal vents, but I've not put a camera down on one yet. Um, it's complicated. We need, we need one of those remotely operated vehicles. We can't just use our drop camera because it doesn't go deep enough. And there's all these things. So I really want to get out there and explore that ecosystem because these hydrothermal vents on our coast are, they were discovered, but they're really a small area. And I don't think they're going to be a small area. I think when we really go outside the area where we know, we're going to find more. And more of them, just like the seamounts. And the other big one for us is something called cold seeps. And maybe only three or four years ago, um, a map of the whole Pacific coast of the US came up and it showed where all the cold seeps were. And there are thousands of them. And then it comes to the Canadian border and it stops. And then we know where three or four are because nobody has really put their time and effort into that. And so in the last few years, we've been spending a day of our deep sea survey going to where we think they are. And cold seeps are another kind of, I don't want to call them mini hydrothermal vents, but they're where chemosynthetic communities actually are in the shallower habitats. So totally neat, different kind of ecosystem as well. And so I guess there's a lot of deep sea stuff to explore, but the near shore habitats are a whole nother thing because our near shore fjords, which are amazing and deep have another, well, this is where we found this coral reef. So there's all kinds of really amazing places there too. So I'm really into the deep, deeper habitats of our coast right now and trying to personally, I, I keep wanting to go back and find new areas. So from your experience
1: and all these different types of collaborations and projects and scientific research, how do you think science ca- scientists can engage in educating and spreading awareness about marine protected areas?
0: Well, I think that scientists don't even really need to um, spread awareness as much as they need to share the love of what they do and that's the real big key here is that, you know, there are people across Canada who have not even seen the oceans. And so if you can really show how much you love what you do or where you are or what it is, then people generally really can really engage with it. And so a big part of our work, and I've said this enough, is outreach, outreach, outreach. We do so much of it so because we really want to engage the local communities, to people across Canada, to to students. And I got to say that again, students, we are at a stage where constantly looking for new people and new ideas to help us get through our work. So outreach can make such a difference in our work and the rest of um, Canada's interests in the ocean. So that's just a real part of what we try to do. On that note, what do you love most about what you do? Right now it's exploring. There was a time when I wasn't really allowed to say that because, you know, that's not really what we do, but it is a little bit of like that. I love just that. What are we going to see uh, when we put the camera down? And, you know, that goes back to when I was a kid, when I used to like do fishing with my dad, I put the fishing rod down. I'm like, I wonder what we're going to catch. Or I grew up in Calgary, too. So this is where I didn't grow up near the ocean, but... Um, I go to the beach on, we go to Vancouver and we go to the beach and I turn a rock. I'm like, Ooh, what's going to be under this rock? So kind of always had this, like, what is the, the big unknown, (laughs) whatever it is. And so I do really like exploring. I do really like taking it to the next level and seeing that what we find is protected or is part of a protection plan. And the other large and exciting part is working with my First Nations partners, moving towards hearing what they would like to protect and making it happen for them. So that is something we, I really enjoy too.
1: Well, thanks Tammy. We really appreciate it. And I'm personally very inspired by your work and hope to see you continue with your exploring and and protecting. All right. Thanks a lot. If you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed on protecting blue nature, please visit wwwimpact 5ca or follow us on social media at impact5canada. That's I-M-P-A-C-5 Canada. If you are inspired by this conversation today, consider registering to attend Impact 5 next February in Vancouver, Canada. And check out the other episodes of Protecting Blue Nature wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please see the show notes for this episode's transcript available in both French and English, as well as more resources on this topic.